John Burton, dude, what is up, man? It's great to see you. Good to see you. Yeah, it's uh, fun times in the visual effects industry. I'll know, say, with, yeah. Uh, all kinds of stuff changing. You know, I've been uh, through a bunch of different projects and now I'm working on a big one down in Hollywood, which was something that we haven't really had that much of over the last couple of years. So that's fun. Get back yeah, in the swing of things. It seems like there's more work now than there's ever been with all the streaming services and all the sort of rush to try to make content. Yeah, it's true. And one of the things that's doubly impactful in that regard is we had the pandemic as well. So not only did you have this huge uptick in production happening regardless both with the amount of content that people want to produce and also the number of people producing content. And then everybody gets thrown into a hiatus, you know, for a year and a half or more. Yeah. And then when they start to wind it back up again, then it's like there's more work than actually can be done. You know, people were talking as long as, well, oh, I don't know, five years ago about what was going to happen and that, the people had done calculations on spreadsheets that said there were more shots that were planned than there were roto artists in the world. And they were like, what are we going to do? And, you know, I did some research into how to solve that problem uh, using machine learning. Uh, but that hasn't really saved the day yet. Uh, and I have now, heard that there is like in some areas now there really there is a genuine labor shortage that I, oh, there yeah. was one show that I just read. I can't remember what it was, but I don't know if it was a feature or a television series, but the release date got pushed back and they were saying it's because they they couldn't find enough uh, artists to work on the show. Yeah, that's that's actually a serious problem. And I haven't talked to anybody over the last uh, year that hasn't said, yeah, we were having a hard time finding people. All of the visual effects studios are booked and we're trying to find places, you know, in between the cracks to pick up good artists and even production staff, everything that has to do with visual effects is in short supply. And do I think, think that's actually across the board as well. It's not just visual effects. It's, it's an industry wide industry. Yeah. 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 I was wondering if in visual effects, if it's, is it mostly just that now there's so many, things being produced or is it that there's so many more uh types of like you know just invisible effects going into everything that's being shot i would say the latter is probably the biggest the biggest factor i mean it's true that there's more visual effects work in general because you have content that's being produced for series that otherwise might not have been produced uh, for example, there's lots more great science fiction stuff being made, things like Foundation mm -hmm. and Altered Carbon and, uh, well, Game of Thrones, obviously, um, that could never have been made as a feature film. And so because the audience is too small. Yeah, yeah. And and so now with series and, and the way the streaming works, where there's lots of segmentation in the audience, that opens the doorway for more of this kind of fantastical content. But the real thing is what you're, what you're alluding to with the invisible effects is that not only do we see effects becoming more and more a part of the everyday filmmaking business, but we also have this ability to do it now and in a cost-effective way. So sometimes it really is cost-effective to use visual effects as a way of creating the original footage, if you will. Uh, Whereas in the past, 
that's usually been sort of like, oh, well, some grip dozed off on the set and we have to paint them out. You know, those kinds of things for a little while there, we're creating a lot of visual effects shots. One of my uh, favorite but- things that I saw was a, a company that was working on um, uh, that series Mindhunter that was on Netflix. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, uh, that, that David Fincher, I guess, really wanted to do was he wanted them to go in and paint out all the wheelchair ramps because it was set at a time before the passage of the ADA. And uh, so he wanted to paint out all the ramps so that uh, the curbs looked right. uh, like they did in, you know, the, the time before that, which it was like, no one would notice that, but then like, maybe you would notice that. I don't know. It was kind of interesting. Well, there's a, there's a, a larger um, kind of part of filmmaking that's affected in ways like that. Um, and this generates a lot of shots. And again, this is what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about production fixes, which fortunately that's kind of abated now. People have realized that that's a waste of money to do lots of production fixes because they think on the day, well, they'll just paint it out later. You know, right. that's not cost effective. And people have finally come around to that idea. But now let's talk about how de-aging technologies and visual effects have created shots. Used to be you do a flashback 10 years and you'd say, ah, whatever, you know, make some makeup on, on your actress and, you know, cut her hair different and give her different clothes and it'll be fine. That's not fine anymore. Now digital makeup is so powerful that you look at a flashback scene and instead of casting a different actor or actress or using a lot of makeup, they just they just use just let the actress or actor do the scene and we'll do digital makeup to make that actor look younger just for the scene. And of course, then we end up with the Irishman and 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 some of the other more famous things. There was a an X-Men show that pioneered this idea of using the act the older actors in their own right, flashbacks. Right. And now that's standard, that's standard fare, yep. which is not different than than any visual effect or filmmaking technique that we've ever heard of it's always it's innovative when you start and even difficult but then it becomes part of the filmmaking process yeah and sure. that's what's happened now is that these kinds of there's a lot of visual effect shots there all of a sudden that would never have been there before because it's a better way of making the movie yeah you get a better result than if you cast another actor or actress and you get you get good value out of your visual effects, not to fix something, but to make something better, which is what we're always aiming for, right? Which is let's let's spend our money making things cool rather than just making things work. And well, it's fun uh, to see like that, the you know the progress, like how far it's progressed in the digital age of visual effects, like how now so many of the things that you know back when we first met, so many of the things that were really kind of pie in the sky ideas are now things that are almost turnkey, not quite, but in some cases, almost turnkey solutions. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a technological process, especially in the digital age where things are developed made take another piece of code so that they're, they become, yeah, like you said, they're not punch buttons, but they're, they're, they're plugins is kind of what they are now. And, and, and that's, that's really driving the ability of, artists to make better pictures because they are able to get to, to at least that 80% position faster. Yep. And you can utilize artists that have less experience with the deeper technologies, put their eyes and their brains into the game, and they can start making pictures without necessarily having to know how to write code. 
Yeah, the and knowledge I, base I, I just, just expands think, yeah. further and yeah, further. Right, right. Yeah. So I think that's the real power of it is that you, you bring people into the game that might not otherwise have had an entrance. Are you are you uh, allowed to say what you're working on, or is that secret? I can't say what I'm working on right now. It's it's uh, it's something that's sort of being kept a little bit under wraps. But okay, cool. um, it, it's a it's a Netflix feature. You know, it's got some uh, some notable stars in it, so that's pretty fun. Cool. And um, and uh, I've come onto the show pretty recently. Did some of the photography right at the end, and uh, now we're in Los Angeles working on post. Uh, and I'm not working remotely, which is rather unusual. Um, but I mean, I kind of prefer it this way Yeah, right in the heart of editorial and we have access to the director and all that kind of stuff, which is the way it has been in the pre pandemic world. Um, nowadays there's a lot more remote work than there used to be because it works. Right. And that's one of the things that we all knew coming up through ILM and some of the other places is, you know, we had zoom meetings, what back in yeah. 1993. 92. Well, I still think back to those like satellite dailies with the, yeah, well, that's during all Jurassic in Poland, you yeah. know, like Spielberg right. was shooting exactly. Schindler's list and looking at Jurassic uh, finals and stuff like that while he yeah. was, uh, yeah. So was that's pretty 1993, amazing. right? Yeah. And, and okay. They, we didn't call them zoom meetings, but that's yeah. what they were. It was the same, was thing, the same yeah. technology, just only operating on a very, you know, the bandwidth was only possible for certain, uh, financially well-endowed yes, yeah. entities. <laughs> yeah, it was much more expensive than Zoom. <laughs> but, but at the same time, the, the things that we're doing now on Zoom are exactly the same meetings we had then. Exactly. Yeah, we, had, yeah. we, had, we had four people. We had people interacting. We had share, screen sharing. We had all of it. And, and so it's kind of great that now and now we see this in use every day. And it's facilitated a lot of, of things. Um, I've, you've used Zoom. I've used you know, something equivalent of Zoom, the FaceTime mm-hmm. with audio, with video since 2002. Yeah. When yeah. I went overseas to start working on movies like uh, Charlotte's Web and iRobot, uh, that's how I kept in touch with home. So even though I wasn't using it in my work life, it, it facilitated my work life. Yeah, and totally. We've how, that, how that's played into what we do today and, you know, working remote um, is something we've been trying to do for decades. You know, because we need to look at our shots. We leave at whatever horrible hour we were forced to stay at work until, and then you'd go home and you'd, oh, you got to figure out if your shot's working. And we didn't have the ability to look at pictures or the ability to have the security to put pictures over the web or the bandwidth to do it. So we, we, you know, we longed for it. It's like, well, if we could just work from home, we'd be Well, able that to is the biggest change that stuff. the pandemic really brought on too, uh, more than anything is how many artists have worked, uh, you know, in their homes on, you know, big shows and they've been able to keep, you know, this, everything secret, you know, like there was yeah, always yeah, that big concern yeah. that somebody would leak an image, you know, to uh, some, you know, as, as yet to be released film. Uh, and so, you know, the studio would be upset, of course, and that didn't really happen. I haven't seen anything like that transpire or heard of anything like that. It seems like, you know, people have been really respectful of uh, being able to continue to work in a remote capacity. Yeah, well, I think that's really the interesting thing that people missed out on in terms of work from home, both in the film business and also in uh, business in general. And that is, there are a couple of big fears about having people work from home. Number one is security, but even bigger than that was supervision. 
Mm-hmm. Will people who are not being personally supervised actually be productive or will they sit around watching television in their pajamas right. and <laughs> not actually doing any work, you know, and that mythology persists. Yeah. Uh, but what happened, at least in the visual effects business, and I think in other businesses as well, is that people said, okay, look, working from home is very helpful to me. I don't have a miserable commute. I can see my kids, I can assist with their upbringing in a way that I wouldn't otherwise be able to. And if I blow it and don't keep my work secure or I'm not productive, then I'm going to lose this and I don't want to lose it. And the management didn't believe that the workers would be so conscientious or would would actually do work to be able to maintain the privilege of not having to commute and seeing their family. And on top of that, there's a natural efficiency in working from home that people have not really understood, which is that when you're at home, you know you have to get your work done because as soon as you get it done, you can go on with your life. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas if you know you're going to be stuck at work till 10 o'clock anyway, there's a natural tendency to just sort of let the work fill the space, right? Yeah. Because there's no motivation there. And I think that's something we've seen. I think it's surprised a few people. Um, And we'll see how it carries on. But I think what's going to happen is you're going to find that people that understand that dichotomy, that get your work done, keep it the way it's supposed to be you can gain a lot of lifestyle. Well, and, and it potentially and, expands the pool of workers too, because exactly you too. can get yeah. people out of different time zones. You can get people from different countries. Like, you know, there are ways in which you could probably deploy and scale uh, a crew in a different capacity than you could, you know, where everything was in yes. a facility in a specific location. Yeah. You don't have to move people into offices. You don't have to, I mean, there's a, that's the other thing that, you know, from a business standpoint is like, well, duh, Yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> if you have everybody working from home, you don't have to pay for the air conditioning and the janitors and the yeah, it's tough on commercial real estate, maybe, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Commercial real estate suffering from it. Uh, but, but that's, you know, that that's another aspect of it from the business yeah. standpoint. So but, John, but, I, I, I wanted to ask you, we've, I've, I know we've known each other now uh, for uh, too long, probably. Yeah. Longer <laughs> to, than to, anyone wants to count. Is that yeah. What <laughs> but, uh, but I, and, and we worked together on many shows. You were my supervisor on a number of projects, the mummy and uh, a few others, deep rising, I think uh, was one of our fun. Weren't you on that yeah. show? Yeah. That was, I was, fun. I just did a, just did a DVD segment for that, for the, Oh my gosh, 25th anniversary <laughs> DVD of Deep Rising. Yeah, that's so funny. Uh, that's a movie that not many people have seen, but uh <laughs> Yeah, it's getting a little bit of a cult status now. <laughs> yeah. So, but I realize that like I don't know a whole lot about your background. I'm curious, like where where are you from originally? Where did you grow up? I grew up in the Midwest, the Great Lake States. Um, so primarily Ohio, but also uh Lived in Indiana and Wisconsin, Illinois, you know, that, that whole area in there, but mostly Ohio and um, went to school in Ohio and uh, what went did your, to grad school. What did your folks do? My dad, you'll be unsurprised to hear, 
was a mathematics professor. Oh, right on. Okay. And, and he, he taught at Ohio Northern University in this forsaken area of Northwestern Ohio. Um, <laughs> I ended up going to Denison, uh, which is just outside of Columbus. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I uh, did, I had a career as a radio announcer. Wait, well, be- uh, before that, were you like, as a kid growing up with a dad who is a mathematician, like, were you like a, were you a math kid? Were you good at math? Were you, did you uh, have a, like a really early home computer in your house or anything like that? I did have an early home computer in the house and I used to go over to my dad's office and hack around on his computers. I was working on computers that were associated with my dad's uh, work as early as the mid sixties. Uh, and was he, was he a professor of mathematics? He was, he was a professor of mathematics. Okay. Um, and so he was very interested in computers and the computer science stuff at though in those days was in his department and he was the guy who was teaching computer science. Oh, well, there you so go. I got really heavily involved <laughs> in that. I will say that computers and being good at math to me are kind of opposite ends of the spectrum is that I never got to be really good at math because I figured out that computers were really good at math. <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of that's kind of a, of a benchmark for my entire career, right? Which is it's the, kind of a similar which, like way which, of thinking, I mean, right? Do, it's, it's logic it and that know, kind of stuff. It helps to know about the math. Yeah. But but uh the important bit is to know that you don't need to be afraid of it because that's what people that quote unquote don't like math, that's their problem. They're afraid of getting the wrong answer. Mm-hmm. And and the computer. Many people say, well, I don't want to deal with computers because I don't, I don't like math. It's like, no, you don't get it. The computer does all the stuff you'd be worried about, and it hardly ever gets it wrong unless you tell it the wrong question. <laughs> so so were you doing like computer. simple, like, you know, like learning programming and stuff like that yeah, as a yeah. kid? You know, basic. And I learned Fortran when I was in high school because that's what ran on this computer that was in the engineering school at Ohio North. And they had this giant computer, you know, this huge thing, you know, bigger than any computer that anybody listening to this podcast has probably ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it had like, I don't know, I don't even know what the numbers are, but it, probably this thing on my wrist has got like a hundred times more compute power than anything I ever saw. Right, and right. it might be a thousand, it might be a thousand, <laughs> it might be more, it might be, you know, huge numbers of magnitude. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I, I, I found out about that and it was the logic of it that intrigued me yeah. the logic patterns of being able to say oh if this then that and how to organize those things into structures that would solve problems that you needed to solve um, and you know i got into making games you know that was the first thing i started programming was little little games and um, i did that all through uh, my high school my college career as well which was a time period that there weren't that many people that were that involved in it. And sorry, you said, you said, did you go to, you said Denison? Denison. Yeah. Yeah. And Um, what was your, did you, were you in the computer science program there? Started out that way. And uh, what happened was that I ended up down in the weeds doing what's called machine language programming. Mm. (laughs) And I was like, okay, this is too hard. This is like crazy hard. You're like typing in hexadecimal numbers and this will be almost incomprehensible but there were no CRTs. Hmm. There were these type, these, these teletype machines with punch cards. Oh yeah. And, yeah. and so, and there were, there were plotters and printers, but there were no screens and it was just really 
be a lot of work. And I was like, well, I can see the potential of this, but I want applications. You know, I want right. games. I want things that are that are interesting. And uh, so I, I went over into the communications department and started working as a radio announcer and programmer and all that kind of stuff. And that became kind of the focus of what I was doing in school. But I had that training in the computers. So you see where this is going, right? Which is, you know, 10 years later, you have this collision of music, video, art, science, and knowledge of computers, which puts me in exactly the right position that I needed to be in in graduate school when I ran into Charles Surrey and the computer graphics research project at Ohio State. And that I was in the perfect position to understand all aspects of the problem of how to take computer graphics and make it into an artistic expression, i.e. a movie. Yeah. And and so you know that was my lucky break in time that were you were you like as ideas. a as a young kid you were you were exploring you know computers with the help of your dad's uh work um were you also uh i mean most kids are i guess but were you a movie kid like did you like going yeah. to see films and stuff from the very beginning you know um my first memories of going to see movies was my parents taking us to the drive-in you know stuff like Snow cool. White or yeah. uh, Sleeping Beauty or um, uh, and there were a number of pictures, but the ones that I find to be most seminal for me was when I started going out to see movies on my own. And the movies that I saw that started me off in loving films were the double features they would show in the tiny little town in Wisconsin where we were living. And we'd get the movies. All the towns I lived in were these small college towns with like 5,000 people. So we would <laughs> never get first movies. We'd always get the movies like a year later. But we'd get double features. So we got From Russia with Love and Dr. No as a double feature. <laughs> That's okay, good. So That's a good one. Those are great, right? <laughs> and the other double feature that we got was Hard Day's Night and Help. Oh, wow. And nice. those two double features, you know, <laughs> set the table for me. Yeah. I was like, all right. And uh, from there, you know, there's all the films that come out in that time period. But the first one that I remember just knocking me out uh, where I first realized that, you know, movies can be something else, something different than just entertainment. I mean, even Dr. No and, and the James Bond films are largely sort of entertainment yeah. kinds of things. They uh, And, you know, the Beatles are just for fun. But I saw Cool Hand Luke. Mm. as 14 years old. First movie I could go to that wasn't an animated cartoon, right? <laughs> and I saw Cool Hand Luke. And anybody that's seen that movie knows that's a hard-hitting movie. About what we have here is a failure people. to communicate. Yeah, <laughs> it's fantastic. What a film. And it just blew me away. And, and I came to this realization that has guided me throughout, which is, What's going on here? These people have gone out there and they've taken two pieces of plastic with pictures on it and they've, they've cut them together and they've shown them to me on a movie screen and it makes me angry or it yeah. makes me cry or it makes me happy. You know, how or does never that want work? to eat another hard boiled yeah. egg? Yeah, never want to eat another hard boiled egg. How does that happen? You know, there's just a piece of plastic running through a machine with a lamp in it. And yet, because of somebody's artistry, we're having an emotional reaction. How does that work? 
And that's when I got into the idea of making movies. Yeah, that's cool because that it's work? like it's so interesting how uh, you know the convergence of art and technology. It's one of the unique things about filmmaking and, and cinema in general is that it is such a a multidisciplinary art form, but it involves an engagement with so much technology in a way, the tools and the um, uh, the mechanisms of cinema in order to like execute and create a powerful story requires an engagement with a lot of uh, equipment, but also, you know, this high level creative mind that's functioning yeah, you, on multiple disciplines. I think that's one of the things that, that makes me love motion pictures and making motion pictures in a certain way. Uh, you can really get completely uh, sort of expansive about that idea, that idea. And it's like, okay, so what are the, one of the two things that separates human beings from all the rest of the living organisms running around on the planet is the ability to reason and the ability to use tools. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, 2001, a space odyssey. What does the big black monolith teach the chimpanzees? Yeah. How to use tools. Yeah. And that's, that's the, uh, to me, that's something that's in high relief when you talk about making uh, motion pictures and in double high relief when you talk about using so-called high technology to make visual effects. Yeah. So, so you're so really that, taking that to the nth degree. In that graduate school program, like what kinds of things did you experiment with? Did you make like actual uh, visualizations? Were you doing stuff at that point, like with computer graphics? Yeah. So, Charles Surrey was a, a fellow who was a great pioneer in computer art. Um, he just passed away just a few months ago at the age of 99. And he was a person who worked at Ohio State and worked on the idea of how can you use these computing technologies to make art? And he was using these plotters that I was talking about a few minutes ago to draw pictures on printer paper that were representations of mathematical equations, which created art. And he got funding from the National Science Foundation because the National Endowment for the Arts wouldn't touch him because he was <laughs> using computers, which didn't make sure. sense to them. Um, but nonetheless, at Ohio State, he created this program, which then interfaced with the computer science department. And they ended up making this program called the Computer Graphics Research Group. But, it, but Chuck's work was funded by the art education department. And their idea was trying to figure out how this worked. How does creativity find its way through these technologies to create artistic works? And Chuck was the head of that. And we were one of the first groups of artists to be brought into that program as artists. There were tons of programmers doing all this work to create these images that do the computer graphic stuff. And they wrote one of the very first ray tracers. So uh, Robert Conley was there and he wrote a ray tracer and they did this, this animation of a crystal sphere bouncing on a mirror. <laughs> and the guys at the photography and cinema department where I was a student um, told me about it. And they said, look, you're doing some crazy stuff that we don't really understand with this video synthesis. I was doing video feedback loops and all this crazy sure. stuff. And that's not the kind of filmmaking that we really understand. But this guy over here seems to be on the same page with you, and you should go check it out. So I went to see this thing, and I, they showed the thing, and they explained what they did. And 
Yeah, that was essentially saying, well, you know, there's a mathematical construction of the sphere and there's a mathematical construction of the plane and we can track the geometries of light bouncing off the surfaces of these things. And, and if we use the right equations based on physical-based modeling, then we can create a representation of what that would look like if it was real. But what you're looking at here, this glass sphere bouncing on the mirror does not exist. This is a completely synthetic image. And that made the jaws drop all around the room. But I was, again, in the right place at the right time. And I was the guy standing there who actually understood what they said. <laughs> and my first thought about it was like, wait a minute. This is scalable. This is extensible. And I, I didn't have this literal thought. But in today's world, it makes sense to say that what I thought was, you could make a movie with dinosaurs using this. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that concrete. It was more like, wow, you could do anything. You could make any movie you wanted with this if you had enough compute power and you you developed this technology along its obvious pathway. I, I'm kind of curious, like for you, like, you know, describing that, like it all totally makes sense to me, but I'm curious, like for you as a, as maybe as a young person, like growing up and then arriving in this place, do you know, like I could see where the the interest, you know, from games and like interest in computers and programming, like I could see that connection. Where do you think the, that kind of art piece came from for you? Like growing up, like what planted that seed that helped you make that connection? I would say it's the love of film would be the number one thing uh, that I was interested in telling stories with pictures. And I was also very interested in music. So did you make any like short films of your own as a kid or anything like with a super yeah. eight camera? Or? Yeah. Yeah. You know, we were the, I was on the crew, cr- you know, they, they, high school design, they would buy this video camera and they bought it because the football team needed it. Right. Oh, sure. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then they'd get this piece of equipment and they'd go, anybody know how, does how it to work? run this? How does this yeah. work? And so they'd look around and they find the geeky kids that weren't on the football team. Well, there were only two of us that weren't on the football team, probably. But, <laughs> and they said, hey, you guys, you know, can you help us out with this? And we're like, sure. And so we became the operators of all the video equipment. So as soon as the football game was over, we were like, well, we got some ideas about what to do with this. Now that there's no football yeah, game, let's so all cool. make some movies. You know, So we were we were always making little comedic skits and and things like that. So and with music, did um, you, did you play an instrument or were you? Yeah, like- I, I was, uh, my mother was a musician. And uh-huh. so, and, uh, and we were all in the band, you know, I played, I was, because I didn't like to practice. I played all kinds of instruments. I ended up <laughs> playing the trumpet and the French horn and the tube and the percussion because they would bounce me around, which was great for me because when my later life around the time I was at Ohio state, I also began uh, becoming very, very interested in synthesizers and digital music. And so this is also what's driving me towards computer graphics is that I'm working with digital music. And so I'm, I'm, I'm using the same bits and pieces literally as I'm going to be using with computer graphics two years later, but I'm only just making music with it or, and, and so I have this idea. In fact, the first, one of the first computer graphics movies that I made was a synthetic piece uh, that was music that I had written and, and performed in the electronic music laboratory at Ohio State's music department. Cool. And I coupled it with the computer graphics that I was using, making using intentionally similar techniques of repeated motifs, 
um, and certain kinds of harmonic um, layering in composite that were put together in the same way that the music was being put together with various harmonics and things happening. And so there was a piece that I wrote that I then did the computer graphics for that got into a music festival at Ohio state. Oh, that's so cool. Um, that, you know, it's funny. So, I, so, so all I, these things were coming together, you know, this, yeah, and I would say that's why I say music really was a big part of it is because I got into digital music slightly before I got into digital image making. Yeah, I talked to Josh. To I talked to Josh Pines. I talked to Josh Pines like a couple months ago, and he he had a similar kind of thing where he was at I think the Cooper Union in New York, mm -hmm. and he got yeah. really into yeah, yeah. synthesizers and electronic music and doing stuff in that kind of similar vein. Like that must have been a really fun time when that first kind of uh, wave of uh, electronic music sort of kind of hit the yeah. hit and the airwaves, you know, like what an interesting way to start to experiment with, yeah, with, with that kind of uh, sort of digital uh, synthesizers. I mean, that's so interesting. Yeah, figuring out how that was going to work, you know, that was really on the cusp there as well. The first stuff that I was doing in Ohio State was still analog. Uh, but the, you could see where it was going to go and how digital uh, creation of sound was. They were working on a digital piano there, and mm -hmm. and and I was working on some other crazy stuff. But the um, yeah, actually, Josh and I have at various points in time decided we got to get together and and rebuild some of these machines because I have a mini mode at home that <laughs> needs some serious <laughs> attention and. Um, you know, we're going to try to sit down and sort out some oh, of those things. It's but interesting I dragged out to think my about... DX7, and that is, oh, yeah. and that's a great device. Yeah, it's yeah. hugely important in terms of digital music. That uh, Yamaha DX7 keyboard mm -hmm. is got this, this frequency modulated synthesis system built into it that is still considered kind of unmatched as a user interface for the creation of interesting digital sounds. It's a really cool device. And yeah, I'm starting the, to write music like, with it again. Like it, that was like in the late seventies, early eighties, and then in the late mid eighties, right? Wasn't that when the the Fairlight machine came right. out? Right, the Fairlight was was in the early eighties, and the DX seven, I think, must have come out in eighty two or eighty three. Yeah, because I used it. I bought one and used it to write the music for the computer animation Snoot and Muttley. Oh, really? Out of Ohio State in nineteen eighty four, <laughs> and uh, so that was kind of cool. You know. I, I uh, got this piece of equipment and was able to write something that again went along with the computer graphics stuff. Was the grad program was that a was that an MS or an MFA? It was or? an MA. That was an MA. MA because it was in the art education department. Oh right. The art okay. department wasn't that excited about this computer stuff either, but the art education department, which is a different department, right. that was involved uh, not so much in teaching people to make art but teaching people to understand art. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that was how things like computer graphics ended up in that department. Uh, but they had a lot of freedom there because there were no rules about it. And so the, the group of people that came into, the, into that program in my cohort were myself, could largely be described as a radio announcer, a gymnastics coach, a printmaker, and a researcher. Hmm. None of us had any previous experience with computer graphics per se, but we all had different ways of approaching the problem. And mm -hmm. as a cohort, 
We were sharing information. The gymnastics coach knew about motion. I knew about filmmaking. The printmaker knew about composition and color. The researcher knew about how all these things could theoretically work together to create a message. That's cool. You know, and, and that was what was going on. It was really interesting stuff. Um, just completely compelling. And nobody was thinking about making feature films or anything like that quite yet. Mm -hmm. But it was just on the ground, just figuring it out, just, you know, looking at what was in front of you and trying to understand it, which, you know, for students today, that hasn't changed. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and it, it doesn't, it's not as, it's not as uh, historically seminal as the work that we did at Ohio State, but it's personally of the same organic nature. Yeah, you're learning the pieces and how they fit together, and how do you how do you turn what's in your mind into a picture using this particular piece of technology? Yeah, we talk about that a lot in 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 this show, but in in the school too. Is just yeah, yeah. it's complex creative problem solving, like at every turn. You know, like what's the thing that you're trying to make? Okay, how can we use the tools that we have access to? to try to, you know, maximize the yield that we can generate as a team. And, you know, it's, yeah. that's really just visual effects. Like in a nutshell, it's complex, exactly. creative problem solving on every level. I mean, complex, creative problem solving. That's the key phrase. And whenever people have asked me, well, where do I go to school to learn how to, you know, make dinosaurs on a computer? I will usually surprise them and say, you should go to a liberal arts school. Yeah. They'll say, well, no, shouldn't I go to DeVry or shouldn't I go to this technical school or shouldn't I go to Bob's house and we'll teach you how to do visual effects, you know, which Los <laughs> Angeles has got like 500 of those. Yeah. Um, and I say, no, because they're just going to teach you which buttons to press on Maya 2023, right. which is not going to really help you that much when Maya 2024 comes out, which yeah. might be next week, right? So <laughs> what you really want to know is how to do creative problem solving mm -hmm. because then whether it's Maya this week and Houdini next week, or nuke is replaced by something else that somebody cooks up. That's even better that you still can use it. You can still figure out how it works. And that to me is, is the core of good education for visual effects, if you will. Well, um, and even having like, um, you know, getting a chance to take a, a philosophy class or a literature yeah, class right. or, you know, uh, some a draw like drawing classes, you know, anything that gets you and puts you in touch with like other facets of creativity, other parts of your mind story of critical thinking, like all of those come into play when you sit at the computer and you're trying to work out a, a technical problem in a shot or something, you know, I think you have to have all of those pieces uh, in working order <laughs> to be really, I think exactly to be good at it. And now that that's, that's really the, the real reason for recommending liberal arts education is because yeah. of that, you know, yeah, you can learn physics. That's valuable, super valuable, but what's really valuable is critical thinking. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, the, the, the philosophy courses and the, and even the English literature courses and these kinds of things that seem to have no relevance whatsoever are actually at the core, the most relevant, because they're teaching you how to look at all these different things in different ways and find the correlations and find how to solve problems based on what you've learned from those, those particular environments. So uh, after your after your graduate school experience, what uh, what do you do? Do you immediately start working, or do you can stick around for a while? And well, I was in a unique position: is that just around the time that I was finishing my graduate work, 
Charles Surrey started a commercial company. Oh. And so he started a company called Cranston Surrey. Uh, and Cranston was the money and Charles Surrey was the art, right? <laughs> and uh, we did some of the very first flying logos out of New York because we were in Ohio, right? So that was mm-hmm. also bizarre. It was like, well, wait a minute, everybody that's doing commercial work is either in New York or LA. Uh, but we were in Ohio and guess what? Remote work, right? There you go, right yeah. off the bat. That's what's happening. And so we're creating these computer images that couldn't be created by anybody else because we had the we had the the brains that had written a lot of the code. And so we did things for Cinemax and ABC News and uh, HBO, really early HBO stuff. Oh, cool. When they when ninety percent of their content was prize fighting, yep. we were doing <laughs> we were doing graphics for them. Um, so we started this company and I was one of the first 10 employees and we started, you know, from the very, it's a startup in the middle of Ohio. Uh, that company eventually uh, fell apart because of uh, the cost of the depreciation on the computers, which was mm-hmm. a big problem in those days is that you'd spend a gazillion simoleons on a computer and it would be completely obsolete in a year and you hadn't paid it off yet. That was a big problem for a long time in yeah. the visual effects industry too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has been, and yeah, it was particularly acute there. Um, and that company eventually became Metrolite out oh, in LA. Really? Um, but I had gone on at that point to a different venture, which was to work at Mental Images in Berlin. Oh wow! And I didn't that, know that. That's yeah. crazy. Um, and that was where Mental Ray was written. Yeah. Uh, we were doing commercial work. May it rest uh, in peace. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we were doing commercial work uh, there, but at the same time, the coders were writing Metal Ray. How did so, that opportunity uh, come about to go to Berlin? I mean, that must have been pretty interesting for a kid from just, the Midwest. Yeah, it was just one of those things. You know, uh, Cranston Surrey was falling apart because of various commercial uh, proprieties, you know, that they the depreciation situation, but there are other factors as well. And so I was looking to go somewhere and um, I went to SIGGRAPH as you do. Yeah. And I ran into a networker and the networker, you know, got me talking to some guys that were starting a company in San Diego and some guys that were working in New York and some other guys. And he hooked me up with this fellow by the name of Rolf Herken, who was starting this thing in Berlin. And we sat down and started talking and he's a physicist. And well, one of the pieces of the puzzle that I left out that when I first started at Denison, I was a physics major. Oh, wow. And then okay. I got into computers and I ended up in radio, <laughs> uh, but the, but the, I, you know, physics was a great passion of mine. Yeah. And so I knew enough to be dangerous. And so I got <laughs> into this conversation with this theoretical physicist. And by at the end of two hours, he was like, well, we were looking for these guys from Hollywood to come and join our company. Uh, but you're like the guy we want because we've never heard of Ohio. We don't know where you're from. We don't know oh, what's going cool. on. That's cool. What year? What year right was this? 1986. So that would have been before. Well, there was still in East Germany. Yeah. Before yeah, the totally. wall came down. Yeah, we were inside the wall in Berlin. Wow. Yeah. So that was also a wild experience. And How really, cool. I mean, really, Berlin, really like, unique. I mean, then and today, like, yeah, it's Berlin just such always an amazing town. Yeah, it really was fantastic. Um, but yeah, we were there while the wall was still up and you had to fly low to get in. And, <laughs> right. 
and you were trapped inside the wall. But we also got to go into East Germany because we were Americans and that was allowed. Uh, and so we actually <laughs> saw East Germany as East Germany before yeah, the yeah. wall came down. Came down about a year after we came back home. Right. Um, so that was, you know, an that was my first chance to use commercial software because everything we'd done before we'd written and then we get out to Berlin and it's Wayfront. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's like, okay, now you have to work with what they wanted rather you can't walk down the hall and say, can you fix the code so that it does what I want? You had to figure out how to do it uh, with the code that was there. Right. Um, and uh, well, that was a really great experience. I, it set me up with some networking. Uh, a fellow by the name of John Nelson, who's a visual effects supervisor, uh, came to work at that company and we worked together for a while. And that resulted in a connection for me to go to ILM because John was a commercial working on, he was a visual effects supervisor working on the commercial division at mm -hmm. ILM. And this is 1989. And so when Terminator 2 came along, he put my name in the hat. And that's how I got to ILM was based on his recommendation and uh, started on Terminator 2. So you, you came back to the U.S. and went to straight to ILM in 89? Uh, I was actually back in Ohio again for a short period of time. Um, Mental Images had a certain run, and then they decided that, that making software was a better idea than, than trying to do this very difficult <laughs> <laughs> commercial stuff. In the meantime, after I left, um, two other ILMers that you know worked at Mental Images. Uh, and they both did commercial work there, but they also both participated in the development of Mental Ray. One of them was Stefan Fangmeier. Oh, right. Of course. And, and the other is Gerald Guchman. Oh, right. <laughs> so so uh, that, that paid off on Men in Black because when we got to do the scene of the car going down the tunnel in Men in Black, I went and said, we need to ray trace this because we want to get the self-shadowing and self-reflections on the bumpers. Well, that wasn't a very popular idea because ray tracing, everyone, that people, especially in the producing group, who only one thing about ray tracing is that we didn't do it anymore because it was too expensive. Yeah. And that's why we're doing scan line rendering is because it's faster <laughs> and cheaper than ray tracing. And now here I am going, no, oh, we should use a ray tracer. They're like, no, we don't want to do that. <laughs> so I went in and said, if I can get it working in two weeks, can we do it? And they said, okay, you have two weeks. And, and I said, I need two guys. And they said, okay, who do you need? And I said, I need Gerald Gutschmidt and I need Dan Goldman. <laughs> they right said, on. okay, <laughs> you can have those two guys. And they did it. They did it. Yeah. And, and then the, uh, the car in the tunnel was ray traced. And so that was, that was really fun. That was a, and, and it's it, cool. It, that that's where you try. So, um, yeah, that was uh mental images was this little kind of crossroads where a bunch of people crossed over, you know, John Nelson's had a great career as well. Um, he's got a couple of Oscars for uh, gladiator and blade runner 2049. Oh, so, wow. He came out of out of that that little tiny shop in Germany, you know, and and uh, so it's it's really interesting to see how these pathways develop. And I don't think that there's there's any single way, but you you find each piece of the puzzle is another way of enhancing what your experiences are, so that you can build a career around it.
Well, it's funny how the industry has gotten, you know, it feels like it's gotten so big, but in a way though, it's still such a small world. Like you run into so many of the same people, you know, uh, here and there over and over again, you know, and it's like, you realize like, oh, you know, so-and-so and and you work with somebody at a company that you didn't work with at another company. Oh, but they already, they know all these other people that, you know, and I always find that so interesting. Yeah. I mean, the networking is really terrific, you know, and we see that in all of society, partly because of the internet, but also in our business, it's really not that big. No. And it's filled with people that are super passionate about what they're doing. Right. And so that they're, they're, those relationships are important to all of us because there's always new ideas. You know, there's always something going on that, that is new. You know, I could list things just now that we could talk about that would all be things that are just on the cusp of being developed that are going to have a huge impact on how visual effects work in the next five years. And it's always like that. And the only way you can keep up with all of it is to talk to your friends because (laughs) no one person can know it all. It's too many things. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, yeah. Especially now it's gotten so massive in terms of like with all the, the advent of so much real time, you know, you're talking about mental ray and ray tracing. And now we have real time ray tracing, a kind of like a sort of a cheat of real time ray tracing, but like, you wouldn't really know the difference. Like it's amazing. Like the kinds of things that were the Holy grail of computer graphics, you know, back in the early 1990s, you know, are things that are happening, you know, every day yeah, now. Yeah. And even still, you find that people don't have enough confidence to grab hold of these things. You know, I've been pushing real time on the show that I'm on here, and I've been pushing real time since, geez, I don't know. I was trying to get people to use game engines 15 years ago. Yeah. You know, I was like, hey, let's get real time and, and you know, we can render it in real time. It's like, yeah, but it'll look crappy. It's like, yeah, but <laughs> we'll get more iterations. <laughs> we can make it look better. Now, um, when you when you arrived at ILM, was that um I'm just curious. I mean, I, I was that something for you like like you obviously knew what ILM was. Was it something that was on your radar? Was that a goal ever for you to work? It totally there? was a goal. You know, I when I was in Ohio, I was working with Jeff Light. Oh, That's right. how far Jeff Light and I go back. <laughs> and Jeff and I, um, some of our other friends as well, uh, would go to movies just to see the trailer for the popcorn sales because we heard ILM had worked on it. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> um. So that was, uh, you know, that that's how into ILM we were, you know, All right, we, well, that's, that, that that's cool to know. Cause I, cause it's funny, you know, like, I mean, I was probably like that too, as a kid, like that was where I always wanted to work ever since I was really little. And I feel like there are, so, but there are some people that I've talked to who like, well, yeah. And then a friend of mine told me about this place in Marin and, you know, like some people kind of just happen yeah. to sort of fall into it, but there are people who I think really had that as a goal as well. I was definitely one of those people. And, you know, I think that you find that throughout the, um, throughout the industry, throughout the film industry, there's this group of people, you know, uh, Jim Morris used to always talk about them as spellbound in the darkness. <laughs> and uh, definitely I'm one of those guys who, uh, who had this great passion for movie making and, and, and for movie viewing and would, you know, that was what their life was about was making movies and getting to work on movies and working at ILM was a dream come true. And the passion for the art remains high no matter what. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then you, especially in LA, 
you can go on a movie set and you'll find guys, camera operators that are just like, they're just, they love movies. They're always thinking about the movies. And you have other camera, camera operators that are equally technically good. And you'll ask them, I was like, how did you get into this? And they won't tell you some story about making eight millimeter movies in the yeah. wilds of, of Indiana or whatever. They'll say, oh, no, Michael Jack just brought me to the set one day and said, Let's see if you can do this. And yeah, I could do it. So I've been doing it ever since. <laughs> and so what's your favorite movie? I don't really go to movies. Yeah, it's like a passion, <laughs> like, passion just, free uh, it's labor. It's a job, you know, and 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 that's because they grew up in LA and it was a job. Yeah, and and so you have to understand that this is where people are coming from. And yeah, and and you always find the kindred spirits when you go into a show. The one that I just came back from, I was in the Canary Islands shooting, and I didn't really know anybody because I was brought on late on the show, and I'm going around and. I told some ridiculous joke like I normally do. And <laughs> this one camera operator on the B camera laughed. And I was like, hey, you got that joke. And he goes, oh, yeah, you know, I know all about the blah, 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 whatever obscure thing it was I was talking about. And so immediately we became friends. And, and sure enough, you know, he was one of those guys. That's cool. You know, he was a B camera <laughs> operator. But man, he talked about movies all day long. You know, it just... That was his passion. And of course, he was the best camera operator that was there that day. And well, it's always good really when you can attention to everything he's doing. And and you find those people on every movie yeah. set. And yep. in some places, they're even the majority. Yeah. Uh, but it's interesting that there's also a range. And and that happens in, in all kinds of walks of life. So at ILM was your was what was your first show then? My first show was Terminator 2. I came in and um they said, okay, so here you are. You're one of you're the next to last of our 12 hires for uh, T2, Stefan being the last of the 12. <laughs> um, he's last to arrive. He wasn't the last hired. Yeah. I might've been the last hired. I don't know. Um, Jimmy Mitchell was also in that group right at the tail end. Cause he was hired in. He kind of wasn't brought in as a TD. He was brought in as a TA. Yeah, uh, to just do tape handling and stuff. He but was we a gave Virginia him... Tech grad, I think. Is he? Right? I think yeah, so. We uh, and we used him as a. We just gave him shots because he could do them, and he did yeah. shots, and that's the beginning of his illustrious career. Um, but I got there, and they said, "So you come highly recommended, but we don't know what you actually do." <laughs> 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 and I said, well, I know how to do 3D graphics. I know how to do, I know, know how to light and render and animate and everything else. I'm not a brilliant animator, but I definitely have a good handle on everything else. And I can do motion graphics and I can, I understand concepts of animation. And they said, well, have you ever done any compositing? And I said, well, not really, because I never worked with live action. I've only worked with with computer graphics and it's all mm -hmm. pre-composited, right? So uh, I haven't really done a lot of that, but I've done some, you know, glow passes, things like that. And you have to realize that as me walking into ILM the first day, I walk in, I see a computer monitor and there's a live action photograph on the monitor. Never seen that before, okay? Never seen a photograph on a monitor before. And I've already been working in CGI for, for two or three years that we didn't have that ability. Nobody could scan film. The only people that could yeah. scan film was ILM, right? And so that was shocking. And they said, well, we've got this thing. 
that we wrote called Morph. Do you think you could do that? And I said, sure, show me how it works. (laughs) (laughs) So I was the successor to Doug Smythe in terms of of using his program. And um, that's what I did. I did the morphs on T2 between the um, live action and the computer renders. Those transitions were all done as morphs. And I did Mm -hmm. So I did that for like two years. And then at that point I said, um, this is all fun and everything. And I appreciate the fact that if there's a morph, I'm always the one that gets it because apparently I'm good at it. (laughs) <laughs> but I also have all this computer graphics knowledge. I'd and, like to do some other stuff. And I'd like to do some of that stuff too. Uh, so then I ended up uh, doing a little bit of work on uh, Death Becomes Her, making the twisted neck with Lincoln Who mm-hmm. as the supervisor. Um, and then I ended up, as you probably know, doing a stint as uh, the manager of the computer graphics personnel and operations at ILM. And I did that for a couple of years. But that didn't that didn't wind my clock. Yeah. Because I wanted to make movies. That's what yeah. I came to ILM to do was to make movies. So I went on to Casper as a computer graphics supervisor and uh, and went on from there. Um, but that was uh, kind of the origination of, of my work at ILM was was uh, like they asked me if I could do morph and turned out I could. Now when did you get from computer graphics supervisor on Casper? When did you first get an opportunity to do like a full-on visual effects supervisor gig? That was the aforementioned Deep Rising. Okay, so Deep Rising was the so, first. That was so the Deep Steve's. Rising was a big 9/11 that came in from um, Hollywood Pictures, mm-hmm. which was at the time the sort of uh, R-rated wing of Disney Pictures. Right. And so you know, Deep Rising has got lots of really gory, horrible being ripped to shreds by monstrous scenes. So not to spoil anything, but, (laughs) (laughs) and so um, the director uh, wanted to have some help on this. He was not happy with the work that was being done by the, by the um, visual effects company. And it was Steven Summers, right? Wasn't that his first movie? Yeah. Not his first movie, but it was Steven Summers. He did a movie called, uh, Catch Me If You Can, not the one that not the Spielberg, Spielberg made, one, yeah, uh, with Tom Hanks, but uh, it was kind of the same name. Okay, um, and he also had done Huck Finn previous. Oh, to I didn't realize that. Okay, um, so we had a really interesting time on that film, but that was my first time as a visual effects supervisor, and, and of course, it was just post. It was all just uh, working in post, but we had an incredibly short schedule. And there were something like, I forget how many shots there were. I think there were 16 shots. We ended up doing a few more. But we had this methodology of, we'll have 16 animators, 16 TDs, 16 compers. And we're just going to start all the shots at the beginning of the schedule. And we're going to just run 16 teams right to the end and we'll final all the shots on the last day, which we did. And so... Stephen liked the way it looked and he liked the fact that we were super efficient and we had mm-hmm. used the immense organizational capabilities of ILM to be able to deliver what he wanted on the time frame that his producers needed. Mm-hmm. And so we were, we were heroes. And so that's when he said, I'm going to give you the script for this movie I'm working on called The Mummy and tell me what you think about it. So I read it. And I was very excited by it because it's the kind of movie that I like 
to see and like to work on. Lots of action, got some little bit of horror on it. It was great. A lot of people at ILM were a little, a little bit of askance at that movie, and you know, to be expected. The horror films are not the thing that ILM has prided itself on. In fact, they've kind of prided themselves on not having to do horror pictures because they usually have really low production values. That surprises and, me, though, because it's and, like a remake of such a classic Hollywood. But it didn't feel that way at the time. Hmm. The, the thing at the time, and one of the reasons that The Mummy was so successful is that nobody saw it coming. Right. When people said, we're going we're gonna to bring The Mummy out of mothballs, Universal is going re- to reboot The Mummy. And rebooting wasn't even a thing yet. But that's what they were doing. Yeah. And everybody went, oh, studio executives. They have no idea. Who wants to go out and watch some guy shambling through the tombs with bandages all over his body? Or, you know, just run away, right? Just run away. He's, and so that's not interesting. But they didn't know that Stephen Summers was basically taking Indiana Jones, wrapping him up in a bunch of bandages and turning it into a highfalutin adventure story. Yeah. And, and nobody expected it. So when we were working on that film, it was like, this is going to take people by surprise. You know, our wasn't their tagline, but our tagline was, this isn't your daddy's mummy. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and we had a great passion for that story. You know, people were taken by surprise when I came in to supervise that picture because I developed this relationship with Stephen Summers. And so I'm a fresh newbie, you know, never supervised a picture before. And the first thing I say when I get into the first staff meetings and crew meetings was, I want this movie to win the Oscar. And they're like, you're ridiculous. It's a, it's a, it's a bad idea for a movie. You've never done this before. You sure have some highfalutin ideas. If, if you think that, that uh, you know, the first thing you want to say to your team is to let's make it win an Oscar. But that was laying down the marker. So yeah. This is what we want to do, right? Why are we here? Yeah, I think that's matter. actually a great way to start. Yeah. I mean, I feel like yeah. that's the, that's everybody's like, yeah, OK, like maybe we could like we should maybe play we our, could. put down and our A game, you know? Yeah. And, and if it doesn't make it, no one's going to be surprised, but we've got it. We can do it. And, you know, if it had been today and there were five movies nominated instead of three, mm-hmm. it would have been nominated. Yeah. And uh, and and, that's well, and it was certain. like, you know, it was a huge hit. I mean, it spawned yeah, it's like not the cast numerous on the Oscars. And- <laughs> yeah, it, it's not the cast versions on the Oscars or any of that yeah. stuff. It's simply to note that if you'd walk up to anybody today and say, do you think the mummy, you know, would have been in contention for the Oscar for visual effects <laughs> that year? You would probably unequivocally say, of course it was. Yeah. And, and yeah. that's because... It, there's tons of movies that never got within a million miles of winning Oscars that yeah. are beloved because they're good movies. And now, I'm really, really proud of the fact that The Mummy is one of those. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's one of the ones that like when people, when students and, and other people hear that that was one of the movies, I, they'll say, what movies did you work on? And that's always one of the ones I mention. And people go, oh, I love that movie. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm funny. always amazed at how popular it is. You know? Somebody sent me a bumper sticker the other day. They sent me a photo of the bumper sticker. And it I, I may have the bumper sticker a little bit wrong, but it was something along the lines of, 
I'd rather be watching the 1999 version of The Mummy with Rachel Weiss and Brendan Fraser as <laughs> the bumper sticker. I was like, wow. Wow, that's who, cool. Who made that bumper sticker? I need to meet that. So I'm curious, um, though, on that show, did you were you on set for? Yeah. So you had had you had on set experience as a supervisor before? Because like that's the one thing I think I've heard a few people talk about just in general in their own careers is like the first time that they were sort of in that role of like onset supervisor, like, you know, all the kinds of things around like set etiquette, like trying to figure Mm -hmm. out when you get in to get your referenced and all that stuff. Like, was that something that like, how did you know how to do those things or was it learning on the job or? Well, there's a couple of things that influenced that directly. Number one was that I had worked with film. I had shot movies. I was working at Ohio State as a cameraman for their football team. All right. these things go along, right? So I was shooting 16 millimeter film. I knew how to load cameras. I knew how to operate cameras. I knew how cameras work. I'm a photographer. And I had been in film school, literally in film school at Ohio State. So when I came to computer graphics, I was one of the few people in that time who was coming in as a computer graphics person who also knew about traditional filmmaking. Right. Okay. Almost everybody else, if you go through ILM, there's lots of people that knew a lot about traditional filmmaking, but they had learned CGI afterwards. Right. And and it come through optical and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew about that. I knew how movies worked. I knew that you had to be quiet when you did a take well, and yeah. I knew how to slate a <laughs> shot and I knew how I knew how it worked um, only from, you know, sort of amateur productions, but at least I knew the lay of the land. Secondly, I paid super close attention because I wanted to know more. And so I always asked questions of the supervisors about, well, why was this done this way? Why did, how was this done? How did you shoot this? How did you shoot that? So I had that experience. And lastly, and most importantly, in those days, the, the ILM believed that educating their, their, their CG supervisors about what was happening on the set was fundamental to their success back home. And so they sent us. And I was on the set of Casper oh, as a computer okay. graphics supervisor for several days, taking measurements, watching how Dennis Murin worked. Well, there you that's, go. That's the yeah. learning, right? And and, and gathering it all in and having somebody who was there that would say, don't sit in the chairs because those have people's names on them. You know, small thing, but yeah. pay attention. You know, don't but call that's it. that's so important. And that's so smart yeah. of the company to say, I mean, they're, they're basically like building out their bench, you know, at, by saying, all right, the CG supervisors are going to go and they want you guys the the at the time the younger guys right to see yeah. how like the older guys were sort of doing it on set and then you just you learn like it's like going to school i mean what a what an amazing opportunity at a job to have that kind of ingrained in the culture of the company that we're going to send these other guys yeah, right i mean that's so that that and foresight that, is such a, a key thing in that corporate culture i think was so um that was that's a smart thing to do. I don't know that every company would do that. Yeah, in fact, lots of companies didn't. And I would say the most important training that I got was then on Men in Black, because Eric took myself and a number of other guys, Carl Frederick and uh, Rob Coleman. You know, we were on the set for long periods of time, 
And Eric, because he was also directing a lot of second unit, could then rely on us to get what needed to be done. While he was busy talking to Barry and working things out, we were getting all the measurements and we were doing all the data wrangling and all that stuff uh, and learning what needed to be done. And by, by the time we got to New York, which was near the end of the, of the, um, the photography, Eric had to go up to Astoria Studios and shoot all of the blue screens with the car inverting, the gimbal with uh, mm-hmm. Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith upside down. And he basically handed me the keys of the car and said, shoot these scenes with Barry in Greenwich Village while I'm off doing second unit. You're in charge on main unit. And I got that I got thrown in the pool. Wow, so cool. I really found out what it was. And uh, so that was the training. And Men in and Black, so that was before kind of, that was before the mummy, right? That's Men correct. in Black. Yeah. So, okay. And that, so that was before Deep Rising as well. Yeah. So I was a CG soup on that film. And then uh that was I was on the the first part of the special edition Star Wars stuff after oh, Casper, right. mm-hmm. uh, just on the, uh, the A New Hope stuff. I didn't work on on the Empire Strikes Back or the Return of the uh, Return of the Jedi. Um, so I went on I went on to Men in Black, and uh, that was really the movie where I learned all the things and understood how they worked. And you know, like I said, it's one of those things that I was fascinated and completely impassioned by so i was really paying attention there wasn't a moment on the set and there still isn't when i go to work on movies now there's not a moment on the set when i'm not thinking about the movie yeah and and, and trying to learn something about how the movie's being made and because it's always changing as well but you then learn these ideas about how to get your crews to say okay here's what you need to do when you get the measurements just go here do this get out you know and um those are well, all those, ILM those early those early experiences. Yeah, I mean, like at ILM, like that. Those are things that are really like life altering in a way because it gives you so much more, uh, so many more career opportunities too. In a way, because you wind up having all of these really powerful experiences, kind of you know, under your belt that you are sort yeah. of, which is so cool. I mean, it really just changes the uh, scope, I would think of the possibilities for things that you could pursue, you know, out when you, after ILM. Yeah. And, you know, that, that stuff served me so well, you know, when I was, when I went off on the mummy, you know, I, I knew what to do Yeah, and I had the confidence to do it. And, you know, there were days when things would be going 15 directions and you'd <laughs> look back and go, Oh boy, could have done a better job on that. But you always trying to make it right. Yeah. And, um, and I, I still really love that part of being a visual effects supervisor. I love the part of going out on the on the movie set and things happen and you got to deal with it. And it, that, again, goes back to my radio training, which was live. You can't make the mistakes. You have to just get it right. And if you make a mistake, you have to figure out how to get out of it because there's no second there's no go around like there is when you get into post and you say, yeah. oh, yeah, well, <laughs> do another take. You know, you don't always have that option. Um, and so the, the, how many years did you wind up being at ILM? I was there for 12 years, uh, from 1990 to 2003, what was your 1990? What was your last show there that you worked on? Um, would have been men in black two, I guess. Mm-hmm. I did some other little spotty things, but men in black two would have been the last one that I, 
that it was sort of a big show and that I did. What was what was the uh, the plan post ILM? Where did you where did you go? Well, I was immediately hired to go and work as a second unit visual effects supervisor on iRobot. Oh, this is cool. again the John Nelson connection. Was now, that he heard, was that through Sony? Let's see. That's it's a iRobot. Fox picture, right? I can't remember if it was Sony. I thought Sony Imageworks worked on that one, but I can't. Maybe I'm uh, Digital Domain did most of the work on the show. Oh, okay. And the rest of it was done um, in, um, we did some work in Vancouver um, and we did some work with Weta. So I ended up down oh. in, in uh, New Zealand working with Joe Letary and his oh, group cool. down at Weta for a while to finish the effects on iRobot. So I robot, and then were you then like Charlotte's Web was the next thing that I got involved in, and uh, that was also shot in Australia, and we did most of the work in Australia, but we did some work um, at at Tippet, and we did some work with Rhythm and Hughes as well for the various animal characters in the movie. Did you do you enjoy the the traveling part of the job? I, like I do, you know, it's got its downsides you know <laughs> that i certainly would have liked to have been around my family yeah. a lot more than i was during those years but at the same time we all enjoy traveling and i still do yeah. and that's still a part of what i offer to movies that sometimes helps me find great opportunities you know there's a lot more <laughs> a lot more red lines on the map than there used to be uh you know <laughs> used well, to be true. it didn't really matter but uh you know, uh, like when they said, can you go to the Canary Islands on the movie I'm on now? Well, I could. Yeah. So, you know, I got the job um, going to Australia. You know, that was something that a lot of people didn't have within their abilities at that particular points in their careers. And I did. So um, thanks to my family to putting up with all that. <laughs> um, and we, uh, you know, I got to go. And of course, they got to go, too, you know, so at least for some number of weeks. Yeah, they got to go to Australia and New yeah, it's Zealand. Like a, and it's like England a free vacation, kind of. It is, and and <laughs> and at least if it's not a vacation for me, well, it's yeah, <laughs> an experience for them to learn what the world is. Yeah, and so you know, my kids are have they're a little bit more educated about that stuff than some of their friends are because they have those opportunities. Yeah. My wife and son got to come with me to, to New Zealand for King Kong, but uh, they had a great time in New Zealand. uh, And I had a really dark time in uh, the main building uh, at Weta in the back where there were almost no lights. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I saw saw the inside of a building at Weta in New Zealand. (laughs) Yeah. It's a, we had the, we were enclosed a lot in space at New Zealand as well, but we yeah. get out and see a few things. And I took the family down to the South Island. Yeah, we did that done, at the so end of our nice. trip too. Yeah, but this sort of funny. My uh, my wife likes to tell the story that my son, who's talking to his friends, he lives in Boston now, mm-hmm. and he's talking to his friends, and they're telling him about Cape Cod, and they go, "Yeah, well, the beaches are pretty rocky." And Nathan goes, "You mean like New Zealand?" And they all go, "What?" <laughs> That's cool. That's it's a cool like, thing to like, pull wait, out of your, like pull out of Zealand, your reference. <laughs> Who is this guy? I have no idea. Who's been to New Zealand? <laughs> That's funny. So now, did I see that at one time you taught for a while at Drexel in Philadelphia? Yeah. yeah. What, so how did that come about? Well, you know, 2008 was a, was a 
difficult year financially and it didn't really manifest itself to your year or so later yeah um i did bedtime stories after charlotte's web and uh, then i worked for a year at disney feature animation developing mm -hmm. a, a project there which didn't get made so that ended my disney animation career and <laughs> at that point the bottom fell out of the of the industry um so it was hard times finding visual effects work. Um, and I've always wanted to teach, you know, my father, as I mentioned, was a professor. Yeah. So, so I had that sort of in my blood and I thought, well, now's the time to see if that's an avenue that I'd really like to pursue. So I taught for a year at the University of Hawaii in their Academy for Creative Media. Oh, wow. And, and uh, that was kind of a visiting professor gig. So then I talked to Drexel and they were really happy to invite me to come and teach with them. And I taught for four years in the digital media department at Drexel, which is a combination of um, animation and visual effects, game design and interactive design for web. Um, just because of the way that university is organized, it's not in the film and TV department. Right. So, how did, you, how did you like the teaching? I did like it. I like teaching. I've always liked it. I like talking about the things that I do and talking about things that I can help other people understand. And, you know, the things that they want to do, if I can help them understand how to do it, then I thought it gives me pleasure. And I don't think it's particularly different than working as a visual effects supervisor. And you got to explain to a director why it is that you need to take these measurements Mm -hmm. in a way that they can actually understand it rather than just go, <laughs> uh, more geek speak from the visual effects guys, my head hurts. You know, it's, they it really, it's a technique of being able to communicate these things. And so I've always appreciated that. And I've always been uh, very much gratified by being able to do it. Um, you know, and so I really enjoyed teaching. Um, the reason that I left Drexel was because I ran across something that was incredibly compelling from a conceptual standpoint and wanted to participate in it. And that was light field rendering. Oh, yeah. And so the opportunity to return to California and work at a company that was, again, at a world-class level of of solving technological problems having to do with filmmaking was an opportunity I didn't want to pass up. So I moved to Silicon Valley and worked with Lytro, which was a company that built a very small still frame camera that captured light fields. And now they were building a motion picture camera and a virtual reality camera. Really? I've never heard so, of those. I knew about yeah, the Lytro well, stills camera. They're now camera, owned by, but... they're now, there those those movie cameras and VR cameras are now the property of a giant mega technology social media company, not to be named in public, oh. but you can find out on the on the web who bought Lytro. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, and because that Lytro know, camera was so interesting, yeah. the ability to sort of capture the same moment through so many different lensing uh scenarios and then to be able to computationally shift between yes. those different focal lengths like it, it was just amazing as a when tool. i arrived at lytro i realized that 
teaching was using a part of my brain, but it wasn't using all of my brain. Yeah. And when I started trying to understand computational photography and the way that you try to process three-dimensional images out of light fields captured with micro lenses, mm-hmm. my, all of my brain was working. Yeah. I except was... for the parts that had passed out from exhaust. Right. <laughs> so... <laughs> yeah, that's cool. <laughs> so I really, really, that was a really great move, but it sadly ended too soon. Did the, uh, and... I'm curious, I don't know how much you could say about it, but did the, like the motion picture camera version of that, like, did it work? Like, could you it, do interesting things with it? It worked up to a point. And the two problems of the cinema camera were that it still needed development to work all the time the way you want it to. The way you want the light field camera to actually work is to do all your segmentation for you and to give you three-dimensionality so that you can look around objects in 3D. Yeah. That was the VR camera was designed for that. So gotcha. that when you put on, you put on the headset, you could have six degrees of freedom and actually look around behind the objects and the world didn't stick to your head. If you moved in a lateral way in, in thus three degrees of freedom, when you move your head rotating it in three dimensions, you can do that in a live action setting. But as soon as you move in translation in any of the three dimensions, the world moves with you, yeah. which is horrible. Yeah. Especially if you've discovered six off in a virtual reality environment that's built out of CGI, you don't have that problem. Right. Because the world is separate from your, your viewing platform. So getting that to work with live action was the, was the thing. The cinema camera, which was meant to allow for segmentation for visual effects and three-dimensional capture, consumed way too much power, didn't always give you a very good segmentation, mm. and was the size of a small van. <laughs> Yeah, not not very easy to work with. You couldn't take it on the set. It was too big. Um, The um, VR camera was more successful. It was still large, but it was this flat panel of 100 cameras. The technical work that went into building these things is just staggering. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. You look at 100 cameras and go, okay, 100 cameras. It's like, okay, now sync and calibrate all of them. Oh, yeah, that technology doesn't exist. (laughs) Yeah. And then you have to take all that data out in real time, and then you got to crunch it into a space where it can be viewed in real time using a, a headset technology circa 2017. Wow. We, just to give you an idea of what was involved there, the amount of computational power and number of frames rendered to create a 30-second HD video, the 1920 by 1080 video that would play in real time, that required the computation of more frames than were existing in the finished version of a Pixar movie. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> All right. Yeah. I wonder if it's something that like, you know how, like when, um, you know, back in the early, you know, or mid eighties, like there was a sort of, you know, lawnmower man age of VR and it kind of had its like early uh, invention and people were exploring virtual reality and kind of talking about it in the, the late 1980s. And then it kind of disappeared because it just wasn't quite ready for prime time. And now it's sort of resurged again and we're seeing it again. I, do you think that that type of uh, 
like a light field sort of cinema camera could come uh, back at some point in the future? Or do you think it's just not a practical thing or there's not a real need for that kind of It will system? come back. It will come back and it will work. The things that need to happen to make it work are computation needs to get faster. Okay, well, that's happening all the time. Right. So that's just patience, right? Uh, and and all this, this is what the previously not mentioned giant uh, computing company bought. There's code that does it. And the problem is that it just takes too long. Yeah, It takes too much computation and it takes, and it takes too long to do it. But the code is good. It just, the, there's not enough power there. So that means that you're already, 90% of the job is finished. You're just waiting for the Silicon guys to catch up. So the, the, the concept is good. And yeah. there's, more con- there's more development to be done. And it's really clear what that development needs to be. So that's just waiting for things to come around to the place where you can do it, which is what killed off the first wave of VR and kind of murdered the second wave as well, which yeah. is when Lytra went out of business. But an interesting thing has happened. You know, apart from the fact that the transmissibility of these ideas is more obvious and that the problems with computation are really the problems. Um, secondly, we went through a phase recently near the death of the second wave of VR where you turn on your TV and there was actually advertisements trying to sell you VR headsets. Mm-hmm. But the head, the, the, apparently the people selling the VR headsets thought that the main value of the headset was that you could put it on your friends and make fun of them. <laughs> <laughs> when you have people like Nintendo out there doing ads, where they say, come on, grandpa, put on the headset. And he puts on the headset and you don't see what he sees. You just see him go, ah! and everybody going, oh, grandpa, we got you. You know, you know, it's like, okay, well, that's a limited audience. You're not going to yeah, yeah. make it. You're not going to sell a million units, but that is your main selling point. No. <laughs> but now if you watch TV ads, you see people in VR headsets all the time. And they're the cool guys. They're the cool guys. They got the new thing, you know, (laughs) they're the cool guys. And so that tells you that there's a lot of people out there that believe that VR has a future. And that's because spellbound in the darkness, immersive media is the next level of spellbound in the darkness. And you can ask any of your gamer friends or yourself, if you have secretly become a gamer, that there's that place that is the suspension of disbelief when you're playing a video game and you suspend disbelief playing a video game in an even more visceral fashion than you do sitting in a movie theater munching popcorn. I mean, I had those experiences back in the eighties playing arcade games. So you got this little window in front of you and you're punching buttons and you're there doing this. And somebody comes up and taps you on the shoulder and three hours have gone by and you don't even know where you are. What and, would you say are, and, are there are there things that you see today from your vantage point, like in visual effects that are similar in terms of the technological kind of uh, I don't want to say I mean that sounds corny, but the technological breakthroughs, like or technological advancements that have um, or things that you see coming in visual effects that you think will, will change the audience experience or the ability of filmmakers to tell different kinds of stories? Well, I think immersiveness is actually one of them. I mean, look at how wide the lenses are in all these movies. 
You know, back in the days of Men in Black, beginning of the 21st century, Barry Sonnenfeld used to shoot with 21s. And everybody's like, wow, 21s are so wide. You know, it's like everything's all distorted and wide angle. Now, look at my picture that you're looking at on your on your, on your thing right now. And, you know, that makes it's pretty Barry wide. Sonnenfeld look like he uses a <laughs> telephoto, right? <laughs> true, true. Uh, and uh, this is what you see in movies. Everybody's shooting with 14s and, you know, they're practically shooting with eight millimeter lenses, you know, these huge wide lenses. So that's because people want that immersion, right? And so that's where we get into creative environments. And what are we doing? We're not doing map paintings anymore. We're doing complete surrounds. And sometimes you take those complete surrounds, pop them up on huge video monitors and shoot them in place on the set like you did in First Man or many mm-hmm. other, any, any movie you've seen in the last 10 years that had, well, five anyway, uh, that has someone driving in a car is probably a, a CGI environment on a, on an LED screen. Well, and that's been a huge improvement in those types of shots, which are always my yeah. most stickler yeah. shots in movies where they yeah. just usually give it to the editor to do it, you know, and it's like, yeah, that's yeah, why yeah. they look so bad. But now you've got the LED virtual production kind of setup and you're getting all the interactive lighting, all the reflections on the glass and on all the chrome surfaces of the car and yeah, on yeah, somebody's yeah. glasses. And I mean, it makes all the difference in the world in difference. the believability of that kind of uh, setup. And I think what you're talking about there is the answer to your question is that there's more believability. We can de-age actors. We don't have to use our imagination. We can make big surrounds that really look like reality. There's going to be advances in rendering that are going to continue with with light scattering and reflection mapping and environmental capture and all that stuff that are going to continue to allow us to make more photorealistic uh, pieces of the movie. Have you and worked with all... the deep deep compositing? Have you had a show? Yeah, where you... that's yeah. another one and, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Although it's like hugely uh, like uh, storage intensive because yeah, yeah. there's so much data per yeah. frame. But... And, and you, you keep running into those problems in movie making where you make these great breakthroughs uh, and then people on the next movie go, oh, that's too complicated or no, it's too expensive. Yeah. Or, yeah, we yeah. don't want to carry around you <laughs> all know, that info. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, <laughs> and I, you know, even today I, I always have this problem. I forget what the thing today was, but there was something where I said, Oh, we want to do this thing. And I go, Oh, well, isn't that going to be a whole lot more data? And I'm like, What? Yeah, okay, but you guys are blowing it on the compression. You know, you don't understand how this works. <laughs> well, it's interesting, <laughs> like the like the with even with all these technological advancements and different opportunities that could yield different results, there is always that push and pull, right? There is that constraint mm-hmm. of the schedule and the budget. And then really like, well, what really is necessary to that's tell the right. story? And, and how and can that's... we find the sort of that happy medium? That's a part of being a visual effects supervisor that is often overlooked. I mean, there are many, many such parts for people that have not been there or near there. You know, think of it as like a visual effects supervisor is a guy that sits in the dark room and says, make it lighter, make it darker, split the difference. But (laughs) that's discounting the fact that you also have to explain it all to the director, get the director to believe, you know, what you're telling them and, and do something that's going to help their movie and so on and so forth. And they've got, you know, you've got to understand how to work with producers and figure out that, well, what is the most important thing? Do we really need this texture map to be at 10 K or can it really <laughs> be at 8 K? You know, it's, and, and, and uh, those are the sorts of things that are part of the job that are not 
often considered as a part of the job when you think someday I want to be a visual effects supervisor. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, you got to be good at that stuff too, or the rest of it ends up being of less value. Yeah. Well, in um, the end, it's like, there is a part of it too, that like, you know, filmmaking in general and, and visual effects, like, you know, when it's all said and done, like it's people and it's mm -hmm. like getting on with people and being able to negotiate and navigate like personalities and, you know, the, the, the needs of the team, you know, like what is the in best service of that uh, larger goal that everyone's sort of moving towards. And I think that's the thing that when I look back at the time at ILM, that is most sort of resonant for me is that, you know, what made that place so amazing wasn't really the movies that went through there, although that's the product, but it was the people, you know, and exactly. the people and the way they all work together and the ethos and that kind of uh, collaborative environment. Everybody can tell you stories about a movie that they're super proud of, that they really love, that everyone else loves too, and that they kind of had a miserable time on it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then you'll also talk to somebody else and say, Oh, I worked on this really terrible movie. It was horrible from beginning to end, but boy, we had a good time. You know, and, well, I say that about and, like and, movies like deep rising. And I say yeah, that yeah, like, exactly. which was not a great yeah. movie, but I loved working on it. It was such a fun group. And then talking in like that cool way that the, you talked about the way the schedule was done. Like that was so yeah. interesting. And then movies like speed Two, cruise control, which I've never seen, yeah. but like, boy, that was a fun crew too, you know? Yeah. And, and the, the point of it is not that, that good movies don't have good times because they yeah. do. Yeah. You know, sometimes you get the trifecta yeah. where you end up, you end up working on a movie that, that is really great. And you have a great time on it. And yeah, I like think, the mummy. you know, yeah, well, I would like to think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would think so. That's uh, one of my top and, ones. And uh, so, you know, th that's, that's what you're always aiming for. Yeah. And, um, and that that's, you know, the, that's all about the people. It's just, that's all you can say about it. It's all about the people. And, and those are the kinds of things that, uh, always makes any project worthwhile. So how long are you on the show now? This one's probably going to run into pretty deep into the fall. You know, it's a, it's a Netflix show. So their scheduling isn't quite as tight yeah. as it used to be with, uh, with box office, you know, when every, every movie had to come out on a separate weekend so that they could make the maximum amount of money. And there's all this jockeying for position with places like Netflix and uh, the other streaming services, they can control that all. And, and, and they don't, they don't set it up that way. Nobody sits around the, the, the day that a series comes out and sits around and watches the first episode at exactly the same time. Right. right. You know, they may all watch it, the whole series within the first 48 hours, but it's not like you, like they have to make all their money in that first weekend. You know, it, it's not about that because they don't take it. They don't have to take the movie down off the streaming service in order to put another movie up. And in theatrical, you do have to do that. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And, and, and so that's made it such that you can be accepting of delays a little bit better. I mean, everybody's got their schedules and nobody wants to jockey around the schedules. But at this point in the movie where there's still months to go, hasn't yet been completely decided. Yeah. How this is going to work, you know? So there's potentially the, a little bit the, like the more amount of money room. is also, is also restricted as it normally would be. Yeah. So you have to play that against time. So if you're going to have more time, you got to have less people, you know, that kind of stuff. But 
that's why I can't say, oh, I'm done on this day and the movie's right. coming out on day and date. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's not the way it works. Um, so I expect that I'll be here probably in, in, into the fall. But you're having a good um, time. I'm enjoying every moment of it. Right um, on. I mean, and that's, it's part of the, the business, you know, I've heard, you've heard me describe that I've been done these movies and I've been teaching and then I've been doing that technology work. And then I've been, I did some location stuff, you know, where I shot the uh, fourth season of um, 13 reasons why, uh, which was off and on, but had the unique and amazing feature of being shot in Marin County and, and East Bay and Sebastopol cool. and so on. And so I'm living in Novato in the middle of Marin County. And it's the first time in my long and historic career that I actually got to work on a movie and sleep in my own bed at the same time. So, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty awesome. That was, that's great. That was spectacular. Um, <laughs> so, th- but this is the first show since, since then that I've been on a you know full on project with thousands of shots and working with the director and all that stuff that I love to do so much. So I'm, uh, I'm really thrilled to death and uh, having a good time every day. Well, great. Um, Well, John Burton, thank you so much. I've taken up a lot of your time here. I so appreciate you taking time out of your day to come and talk with me and to share your stories of your career and your background. It's so much fun to see you and reconnect. And uh, (laughs) thanks, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.